0: All right. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific Monday morning show for you today. And we start with the leader of the B.C. Liberal Party. Now the new incoming M.L.A. for Vancouver, Colchenna, Kevin Falcon. He won that by-election on Saturday. Kevin Falcon, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, congratulations on your by-election win. You returned to the legislature now, nearly 10 years after your first run in politics, this time as leader of the opposition. So so this has all worked out for you according to plan here so far. You got the gig you wanted. So can you talk a little bit about, first of all, what is driving you down this road here? You left a, a lucrative job in the private sector to do this. What are you hoping to accomplish?
1: Well, you know, the big thing for me is just a concern as I've got two young girls, 12 and 9. I think about that generation and I just think about the damage the NDP did uh, to the economy in the 1990s. I was hoping that they were going to be different this time around. But, you know, we're seeing the same old playbook, Mike. You know, they just uh, last week said they're going to strip away workers' rights to a secret ballot when they're making a determination as to whether they want to join a union. That's just the latest. Um, you know they've done their tax and spend approach we're back into big deficits we've got 2023 tax increases it's the usual thing right so I'm just really really concerned that I want to make sure that we've got the next generation uh, being able to grow up knowing that there's government that is making decisions not just short-term political decisions but the kind of long-term generational decisions that can ensure that they're going to have a bright future too
0: Okay, so a lot of governments across Canada and around the world have racked up big deficits, and BC is no exception. So you've tar- you've highlighted that as a priority. So what are you saying? You you want to cut government spending? You want to shrink government? Downsize well, government? Look, is that the plan?
1: Yeah. Look, I, I, you have to look at what they've done. So they were left with a multi-billion-dollar surplus from the BC Liberals. They blew through that, uh, and were just barely hanging on to a balanced budget when they went into when the pandemic hit. So they were as you know they they were not as prepared as they could have been, um, you know they they do not know how to build infrastructure full stop. I mean they canceled a phenomenal deal we had for a ten lane bridge over the Massey Tunnel that would have been opening this summer, uh, and instead, yeah. even though they had a six hundred million dollar below budget offer in place, went through the full procurement process. Um, it just it's tragic, frankly. Now they're replacing the. Patalo Bridge, a four-lane bridge that was built in 1938, and here they are almost 80 years later, and they're replacing it with a four-lane bridge. It's already a year behind schedule, over budget. Um, they, they just don't know what they're doing, frankly, and we cannot okay. have a government that hasn't got a clue what they're doing.
0: Okay, speaking of, since you brought up the Massey Tunnel issue, so the government now embarking on that new Massey Tunnel to replace the existing tunnel, they... They canceled the bridge idea that the previous Liberal government had started building. You have said to me on previous shows that you would go back to Plan A and maybe cancel this new tunnel idea if you end up as Premier and go back to building the original bridge idea. Let me play a clip here for you get your thoughts. So this is Transportation Minister Rob Fleming going after you on that point. Have a listen. they will get your thoughts.
1: If uh, Kevin Falcon continues to say that he's going to cancel this project when we've awarded contracts for it to proceed, when we've built infrastructure like the Steveston interchange uh, and the bus
0: lane uh, that we're announcing today, he's going to have to rip it out. He's going to have to rip up contracts and he's going to expose the taxpayer to more delays, more liabilities and no solution in the future. Okay. That's uh, the transportation minister, Rob Fleming, speaking about Kevin Falk. And Kevin, your response to that?
1: Well, this is a, a guy who has absolutely no background in business and has never built anything, frankly, and it's apparent from his comments. Look, building the Steveston interchange was always part of the planned bridge that was going to be built anyhow. Now, I have to look specifically at the designs and the drawings they've done to see uh, whether we can still make sure we can build that bridge with the uh, the updated plans that they've got for the Steveston interchange. But this is something that can get done. I'm not concerned about the, pro- uh, the, uh, uh, the the work that they've got underway with respect to environmental assessment work on the tunnel option, etc. Because, frankly, they're going to be tied up for years trying to go through the environmental assessment process. He has no idea what they've entered into. I mean, it will take years and years to get through just the federal process and we already had gone through that with the bridge we could have had a 10-lane bridge opening this summer with two lanes dedicated for buses and it was designed for rapid transit in the future it's one of the dumbest decisions i've ever seen in my lifetime in terms of capital so i'm not going to take too much advice from from somebody that frankly has never built anything before and what he does get involved with turns into a disaster
0: Speaking to B.C. Liberal leader Kevin Falcon, in your your victory speech at the by, on the by-election on Saturday, you highlighted a couple of issues, notably health care and the acute shortage of family doctors right now and affordability in housing. Let me play a clip here. Premier John Horgan in the legislature saying, uh, pointing a finger at the federal government as one of the big problems with the doctor shortage in B.C. Here's Horgan. They'll get your thoughts.
1: The opposition characterizes cooperative federalism, making our country work by ensuring that there's adequate... but The Canada health transfer is fundamental to health care in British Columbia. It's fundamental, and it has been for generations.
0: Okay, so is it Ottawa's fault that we've got this doctor shortage right now? Your thoughts?
1: Uh, not not at all. I mean, that that's ridiculous. Uh, Ottawa funds about 10% of the, the health care budget back... In my days, that was their percentage of the share. Um, This isn't an issue about just more money all the time, by the way. Um, The NDP always measure it about how much money they're throwing into the system instead of looking at what we're getting out of it. What we're getting out of it right now is a severe shortage of family physicians. Uh, you've got almost a million British Columbians that do not have access to a family physician. You've got now the orthopedic surgeons coming out and saying that the wait lists for hip and knee surgeries are some of the biggest they've ever been. Uh, I think there's a real crisis in healthcare, and we've got you know folks that don't know how to manage that system, and we've got to get some people in there that understand that we have to focus on results, not promises, not press releases, not you know, uh, all, all these wonderful sounding announcements that they make. We've got to judge them on results. And the results we're getting in every metric are just terrible, frankly.
0: Let me ask you about the report that came out last week on policing reform in British Columbia, which had a lot of sweeping recommendations, including get rid of the RCMP in B.C., bring in a provincial police force, amalgamate and merge municipal police forces. We've got that patchwork of municipal forces. This was a unanimous rec set of recommendations from an all party committee, including liberal MLAs in that committee. Do you agree with your own liberal MLAs there that we should get rid of the RCMP and we should amalgamate municipal police forces?
1: Well not without having a chance to have gone through the report frankly and, and having a chance to talk to the MLAs because I haven't had that opportunity yet. But Look, I commend the all-party committee. It's rare that you have an all-party committee agreeing unanimously on on sweeping changes like that. Uh, So I do think we have to take it seriously. But I also think that I would want to sit down and talk to my friends in the the police forces. I've got lots of friends that are current and past members of the police force uh, trying to understand uh, from their perspective, look at the cost, look at the benefit. Look, at the end of the day, what I do care about is making sure that we've got safe streets. And right now, what I'm most concerned about is the social chaos and disorder we're seeing on streets in communities right across the province. In Vancouver alone, under the NDP mayor there, we've got 120 random assaults against innocent victims every month, for goodness sakes. Um, and it's just getting worse. And so, you know, we've got all the urban, suburban mayors writing to, the, uh, to David Eby saying, for God's sake, yeah. your catch and release program with prolific offenders is just creating chaos in our communities. Stop telling the Crown prosecutors to let these people go. Um, They just I just don't think they understand just how dramatically bad the streets have gotten. And we've got to do better.
0: You talk a lot about affordability. You brought that up in your remarks on Saturday about the runaway cost of housing in British Columbia. And you say that's be a priority for you. The NDP will constantly point a finger at you, like, "Oh yeah, this is a guy who was a private sector developer and got rich in the real estate market when he was away from politics." They also point the finger at you. This is this is part. He was part of the government that put bridge tolls on people. Let me play a clip here for you, John Horgan, going after you on affordability. Get your thoughts. Here's Horgan.
1: Our objective uh, as members of this house is to make life better for our constituents. First order of business was to do away. With tolls on bridges that were put in by uh, Kevin Falcon, uh, the aforementioned uh, medical services premiums are gone completely. They do not exist in British Columbia. Kevin Falcon indexed them annually so they would go up year over year over year.
0: Every time, every time you point the finger at them over affordability, they're going to point it right back at you and say you made left, life less affordable for people. How do you respond?
1: I have to laugh because uh, they always go on about how they took tolls off the Portman Bridge. I just want to remind the public there would be no Portman Bridge if the NDP were in power because they fought against it every step of the way. So that whole 10-lane bridge would never have existed uh, under the NDP. But but just put that aside for a second. Yes, they took tolls off the Portman Bridge. Uh, and yes, traffic growth grew by 30% within a number of weeks. Um, and that we now have basically Los Angeles on that corridor. But here's the thing that people really need to understand. Um, the other shoe hasn't dropped yet. The other shoe is called Road Tolls. And that's what the NDP are going to be introducing with, with their cheerleaders and local government like the NDP Mayor of Vancouver who want to toll all the roads uh, in the Lower Mainland. And you can be sure that uh, uh, there will be a day that comes when people will be wishing fondly that the only bridge that was tolled was the Portman Bridge.
0: Kevin Falcon, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. Good to be on again. Alright, welcome back. Let's talk about one of the burning issues in B.C. right now, and that is the shortage of family doctors. Nearly one million people in B.C. without a family doctor right now. That number is on the rise, and we've talked a lot about this on the show recently. And you can see the impacts everywhere of this doctor shortage, including people having trouble renewing prescriptions or even taking drugs they don't need anymore because they don't have a family doctor closely monitoring their health have a listen to this now dr kevin mcleod from lionsgate hospital he's a frequent guest on this show and here he is talking about the doctor shortage and the problems with drug prescriptions have a listen
2: and somebody just renewing your prescriptions i see this time and time again where you know somebody just had all their scripts renewed and then you look at the drugs and you go but why are you still on this? And you, you can't really expect the, the doc in the walking clinic who has a completely overwhelming schedule and three minutes to spend with you to kind of go through all your drugs and say, okay, well, you don't need this.
0: Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Elizabeth Cull, former health minister in British Columbia. And I'm very grateful to her for being on the show today. Elizabeth, thank you for coming on today.
3: Oh, my great pleasure.
0: It's great to have you here and get your perspective on it. And Elizabeth, for people with uh, long memories in British Columbia, uh, I'm one of them. I get kind of deja vu on this because I remember when you were health minister, and I think we were talking about a lot of the same issues at the time, about a shortage of family doctors. What are your thoughts?
3: Well, actually, uh, and I had to hate to say that it was about 30 years ago that I was Health Minister, but we were talking about exactly the opposite. You may remember, Mike, that there was a Royal Commission report that was done in 1990, 1991, just before the NDP government came in. And uh, I was sort of newly sworn in as Health Minister and it landed on my desk. And one of the things that it said was that there were too many doctors. And, and this is going to come as shocking to oh. you, uh, listeners here in, you know, in Victoria, might be listening to you. Victoria was highlighted as one of the places that had way too many doctors. So at that point, you know, the Royal Commission, uh, having come to that conclusion, and that was right across Canada, by the way, that wasn't just a, a BC problem, but they recommended an actual reduction in the number of seats in medical schools, and they, uh, they uh, had other recommendations that would actually limit the number of physicians, which today seems absolutely crazy.
0: I guess one of the things I do recall being similar at that time was the concerns over the fee-for-service model that we have right now and we had back then, and there, there have always been concerns around this fee-for-service system. Do you think that's one of the big problems why we have the shortage of family doctors right now?
3: No, I think, I mean, it maybe be part of it, but I think there's other factors. I mean, First of all, when that recommendation was done 30 years ago to start reducing the number of doctors, there were unintended consequences that happened. No one really foresaw that um, that doctors coming out of medical school would gravitate more and more to specialties or become hospitalists as opposed to going into family practice. And so it didn't matter whether the number of doctors was reduced or increased or whatever. There was a shift in the kind of medicine doctors graduated and wanted to uh, practice. Then. You know, we have a, quite a difference in newer uh, grads from med school, younger doctors, particularly women, who don't want to do the kind of uh, health services that were provided, uh, you know, back in the day when uh, doctors worked incredibly long hours and had patients going through and really quickly, uh, but they want to have more of a longitudinal care with these uh, folks. Um, and then we didn't really think about uh, how we could use other healthcare care professionals. So it's, it's not just as simple as the fee for service. Um, I do think that we need to have a better alternative payment mechanism for for doctors particularly those ones uh particularly for family doctors but you know there still are a lot of doctors out there who say no i want to do the fee-for-service i need help with other things
0: do you think that i think the bottom line on this is it could cost a a lot of money here to fix this problem and let me play another clip here for you from dr kevin mcleod from lionsgate hospital and he's a specialist there at the hospital And you'll hear him make the point here that he thinks maybe the specialists are making too much money and family doctors are not making enough.
2: Here's what he had to say to me, and I'll get your thoughts is say, look, like specialists like McLeod are paid enough. They don't need more money. Um, Let's redirect or direct all new monies to the family docs. Like that's where the crisis is. It's the supply and demand system. Put the money where the crisis is. And, And just raise the single basic fee that a family doc sees or gets for seeing you in their office.
0: Speaking to former BC Health Minister Elizabeth Call. Elizabeth, your thoughts on that?
3: Well, that's a really good point because uh, most people don't understand this, but it's not the government that determines how much a family doctor gets or an ophthalmologist or a surgeon or anything else. Those uh, That fee schedule is negotiated with the doctors of BC and and they determine the, the relative fees for different kinds of specialties. But yeah, I mean, I, clearly family doctors need to be paid more. Those that are in, uh, you know, who want to stay on the fee for service system need to have some recognition of their overhead costs. But they are also needs to be a way to Uh, make it much more attractive for those who want to practice family uh, medicine to go into clinics, make enough money, not have to be a small business person worrying with, you know, the rent and the hydro and all of the other stuff, having that administrative support they need so they can just get down to looking after patients. And that, is that going to cost a lot of money? Yes, uh, it is. And that's why you see things like Premier Horgan saying, we need more money to fix these problems from the federal government. Uh, he's absolutely right there it's going to take a lot of money
0: okay but i i also recall getting deja vu on that one too because I, I remember days when previous governments were ask, always asking the federal government for more health care dollars and it seems like the demands constantly go up from the provinces we need more money from the feds in order to fix this is this a, is the reality here is that the province is going to have to put a ton more money into this too
3: yeah the province has put a ton more money into it if you look at the way the health care budgets expanded over the years but the reason that provinces are you know united in asking the federal government for more health care dollars is that starting way back thirty years ago and probably before my time they've been asking for it, and it hasn 't been forthcoming. Federal governments of whatever stripe's been there whether it 's liberal or conservative, have not. Uh, stepped up and put in the kind of money that was anticipated originally when Canada went for the, the Medicare system that we have. It was a 50-50 cost sharing in those days and now I've I've forgotten what the actual number is but it's nowhere near that. It's like 20% or less. We need The federal government needs to not create new health care programs that may be very appealing but just add on to the cost of health care. They need to fund, uh, fund the fundamental underlying health care that we all need. And that, that starts with family docs.
0: Do you think that everybody wants to have a family doctor, but do you think that we could look at other parts of the system and increase the number of non-medical professionals in the system to ease some of these strains? Like, I'm thinking more licensed practical nurses or further expand the authority of pharmacists to prescribe medication. Like, is that a, an option?
3: Absolutely, and I mean, that is one of the directions that, um, you know, this government and other governments before them have been trying to go. Let's let's have clinics where you go and you have a, a family doctor there, you're attached to a physician if you need to see a physician. But in a lot of times, you don't need that. You need you know, you can go and see a nurse practitioner. Maybe you need to see a nutritionist. Maybe it's a physiotherapist or something else that you need. A counsellor. Um, you know, those are the kinds of services that could be provided um, through the um, primary uh, care networks that are being developed or in the clinics or in the um, urgent primary care centers you know those that team based care and that goes back to the royal commission too. they were recommending that thirty years ago, and it 's been really slow in coming uh, i'm i'm not sure why uh, it probably again is money, but that 's the kind of uh, health care I think we need and you know we've learned that during the pandemic. look at how many of us. Uh, couldn't go to the doctor, even if we had one, but we we learned, um, you know, that sometimes a, a virtual visit was fine. Sometimes you could talk to your pharmacist about your medication. You know, those things, we, we learned more about how we could use our healthcare professionals more effectively than we are right now. Right.
0: Elizabeth Call, thank you very much for coming on today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. All right, let's talk about Canada's oil and gas industry now, the continuing battle over oil production in Alberta, natural gas drilling in British Columbia and beyond, the pressure on industry now to scale back production in the face of climate change. Check out Justin Trudeau's new climate plan, drastically cut greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, especially in the oil and gas Sector. Have a listen to this now. This is Carolyn Brulette from the Climate Action Network.
3: We cannot fulfill our, our uh, fair share of the global effort to limit warming to 1.5 degrees and at the same time keep expanding Canada's fossil production. We really have to face the converging crisis by responding to both at the same time. And that means speeding up the energy transition as a means to achieve um, energy security.
0: Okay, let's discuss this now with my guest, Colin Goldman, RBC economist, uh, Canada's largest bank. They have a new report out on this topic, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Colin, thank you very much for coming on today.
2: Thanks for having me, Mike.
0: You bet. Thanks a lot. So when you take a look at some of these promises to reduce emissions in our our country right now in in a very short time frame, is that doable or achievable in any fashion, especially when it seems like consumption of oil and gas is going up, and there are brand new pressures on the whole world here as a result of the war in, your, in Ukraine. Your thoughts?
2: Yeah, let me take a step back. So I, I think the first thing that's critical to say is that we absolutely can cut greenhouse gas emissions across the economy and in the oil and gas sector. Technologies exist, uh, and we it's a matter of deploying those technologies. But taking a step back I think if I looked at this problem a year ago, and in fact, we did in the fall in in October release a report, Canada's $2 trillion transition, looking sort of at decarbonization across the whole economy, cutting emissions. Um, We really focused on climate change as, as the singular effort, you know, making sure we were cutting emissions. And today with, you know, war in Ukraine and the global energy crisis, we really have two goals. The first is ensuring energy security, which, you know, every Canadian is feeling, you know, whether it's natural gas they use to heat their homes or gasoline they put in their cars um, and climate change. So the new report really looks at at that and says, we can do both. It's going to be challenging. There's going to be sacrifices we need to make. And, um, you know, the real the real crux of it is, if Canada is going to be, you know, a, a major oil and gas producer through the next three decades, you know, as as energy demand changes and shifts more to renewables how do we go about that and we think we need to have a measured deliberate strategy around that
0: right and you heard in the clip we played there and you hear this frequently from environmental organizations let's move to sustainable renewable new energy sources whether it's wind or solar but when you take a look at the energy demands that we're experiencing right now here in canada and around the world with our trading partners is that possible? Like is oil and gas going to continue to be crucial to energy supply around the world, especially with what's going on in Ukraine?
2: Yes, it will continue to be crucial. And I think the way we sort of view transition is a yes and rather than a no change. Um, the yes and is is do we need to be installing more renewables, wind and solar, Do we need to be taking up electric vehicles? Absolutely. We need to do that at a much quicker pace, especially now. The crisis in Ukraine and and the energy impact it's had should be crystallizing for people to realize the less oil and gas we use, the less um, exposed to the changes in in their prices we are. And that's a good thing. We should be accelerating. But the fact of the matter is we don't have sustainable alternatives for many things we currently do i like to use the example of airplanes. You know, there are some sustainable aviation fuels derived from, you know, biofuel, but we can't run a plane on, you know, 100% sustainable aviation fuel at anywhere near the scale of current international travel demand. And so that's going to be a real challenge. And and the deliberate strategy here is making sure we chart a course that that manages energy transition, so takes up technologies where they're available and invests in new technologies to help cut emissions in the oil and gas sector when the fact of the matter is oil and gas are going to be around for some time.
0: Yeah. yeah speaking of Royal Bank of Canada, economist Colin Goldeman, like when you take a look at current production in Alberta, in uh, Canada's oil, oil sector, your, your report focuses on the new demands that Canada, where Canada is seeing for our oil. I mean, a lot of people want our oil, they want our energy. Is it possible for Canada to, increase oil production and still meet some of these climate targets.
2: Yeah, so there's a trade-off to be made. Our report sort of examines a scenario where Canada increases oil production by 500,000 barrels a day over the next little while. We think that can happen from, you know, some new drilling of conventional wells as well as increased production out of existing oil sands facilities, and that could add something like 9 million additional tons of carbon emissions. So that's, you know, a little over 10% of what we currently produce annually. So it's a big, or sorry, a little over 1% of what we produce annually. Um, it's really sort of a big change in in the narrative around the oil and gas sector. But there are efforts we can take in the sector, including in, you know, going harder on methane emissions reductions, um, And in other sectors, you know, electricity and transportation and buildings, really scaling up our efforts over the near term on cutting emissions in other parts of the economy. So I think the critical message here is, you know, Canadian oil and gas can help alleviate some of the energy crises pressures we're seeing by, you know, ensuring there's adequate supply of oil and gas for current demand. And then we can work towards, over the the medium term, transitioning more aggressively away from oil and gas and recognizing that oil and gas is still going to be an important energy source through that transition.
0: How about uh, some of the new technologies we hear frequently about? And this was highlighted in the recent federal budget as well, like, carbon capture technology where we could continue to develop oil and gas production but somehow capture the carbon before it's released into the atmosphere like if you talk to some environmental leaders they'll say oh this is a myth don't believe this you can't do it what are your thoughts on it was this this was addressed in your report as well right
2: yeah so there's a couple of issues with carbon capture and storage the first is that it's expensive and takes a long time to build and it's you know it's been proven in pilot stage but at the scale that we'll need to deploy it, if we're going to use it as a primary decarbonization lever for the industry, it hasn't been proven. So that's a challenge. But the fact of the matter is that carbon capture can address upstream emissions. So that's, that's carbon dioxide produced when we get a barrel of oil out of the ground. But what it can't yet do um, at any scale is address the emissions associated with the combustion of that oil and gas, for example, in people's cars. And that's a large part of the emissions from the you know energy provided by oil. That's going to be a challenge. The way we see it is really that there's going to be some non-combustion demand for oil through the future for things like lubricants and waxes and all these different things that we use oil for, which you know many folks will know we use it for a lot of different things. Um, and so the the idea in the long term for Canada's energy sector is to try to get a larger share of that you know sustainable um, role that oil and gas is going to play in non-combustion demand in the future and and how we chart that course towards you know, first of all, a totally net zero energy sector in Canada, and then, you know, selling to markets where the, the oil and gas isn't going to be burned, it's going to be used for other uses. That's really the, the sort of off ramp we see for the industry. But that doesn't mean that Canada needs to shut down its oil and gas production. In the interim. And in fact, if we, you know, if we deploy some of these expensive technologies like carbon capture, we could make it harder over the long term to to sell that oil into that non combustion market in the future at a profitable price. So we've got to be a little bit careful about this transition and how much we take up certain technologies. But CCUS definitely has a role. Carbon capture, utilization and storage definitely has a role in decarbonizing, cutting emissions in the energy sector, for sure
0: that that federal climate plan contains those very ambitious targets for drastically cutting emissions and and we've been around this road before uh, you know with these promises we never canada never seems to meet these targets we keep making them and then we never seem to meet them but if we actually were to do this and you you talked briefly about the the cost of doing this like how much would it actually cost i don't think this was in the climate plan but, I mean, it's going to cost billions and billions of dollars to achieve these targets, correct? Yeah,
2: absolutely. Um, we have an estimate in the paper that looks at deploying carbon capture in the in the oil sector, in the oil sands in particular, to sort of meet the scale of reductions the government is pondering in that emissions reduction plan or has pledged to meet. And we think it could cost somewhere between 45 and $65 billion over the next eight years to do that. That's a lot of money. Now, the energy sector... Has quite a lot of money, record profits. Um, you know, we think um, cash flows of like 150 billion dollars this year could be in the cards. So the idea is really, you know, that the money exists. It's something we can do. The challenge is the projects themselves don't tend to be profitable without support from the government, and that's what the government has done in the budget. They've announced an investment tax credit for carbon capture projects that will help get some of them off the ground. It's not clear exactly how many projects we'll, we'll get via the, the tax credit, um, but that's going to help to some of the costs for industry. Now, the question becomes whether or not we can profitably extract oil you know, into an uncertain market once we've made these investments. And so that's why we're advocating for this sort of deliberate approach where Canada kind of works on both sides to make sure that the investments we're making are going to be profitable for the industry as a whole um, through you know, the next 30 years. That's going to be the real challenge, is doing this deliberately and, and and in a measured way that maintains, you know, energy security in the near term, environmental security by cutting emissions, and then economic security for certain parts of the country by ensuring that we have a, a profitable industry in the future.
0: When you take, speaking of the future, when you take a look at the, the demand for Canadian oil and gas products, where is that going right now? I mean, we we've paid, the government has put these very ambitious targets to reduce emissions, but... It seems like the demand for Canadian oil and gas is continuing to rise. I mean, there's a lot of people who say, look, why don't we sell the world our oil and and gas, replace Russian exports, for example. Like, what are you seeing in terms of demand here in the future for Canadian energy?
2: So I think that's the, the really critical question, and there's a lot of uncertainty around it. Right now, oil demand is extremely robust. It's quite high, and that's why we see the prices we're seeing. Um... And, you know, most of Canadian oil currently goes to the U.S. our exports. Um, right. And so there's real questions around, you know, how Canadian oil will continue to be sold through the next 20 or 30 years. There's questions about how much oil the world is going to demand as, you know, more and more people take up electric vehicles or electrify their homes instead of using um, oil or gas for heat. Those are, those are sort of fundamental uncertainties over which Canada doesn't have any control. But what we do have control over or, or we can seek to exert some influence over is how our allies are viewing their oil and gas imports. And the critical piece here, and it's something we talked a little bit about in the report, is that, you know, Canada is a, an important and geopolitically stable producer of oil and gas, and yeah. Western countries shouldn't be so quick to, you know, challenge the economics of Western oil production in favor of a cheaper barrel when there are consequences from that which we are seeing today geopolitically both in energy prices and for the people of ukraine so something we talk about in the report is is seeking to you know generate a north american energy security strategy and and an energy alliance with the us and other critical trading partners to to make sure that canadian industry as it makes these investments to cut its emissions um is is seeing profitable sales of oil and gas to our partners and our partners are willing to engage us in those long term contracts for Canadian oil and gas, you know, right. things that protect prices from falling so much that Canadian investments and in emissions cuts are no longer profitable. Those are really key parts of the puzzle. And it's, it's working to sort of sustain the economics of the industry and doing that with a lens of, you know, sort of the current the impetus for the current crisis, really being, you know, geopolitically unstable producers of oil and gas, flexing a lot of power and a lot of muscle okay. through the that system. Thanks
0: for coming on today. I appreciate it a lot. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. All right, let's talk about BC's booze laws now. And who is responsible if you get excessively drunk in a bar and then you injure yourself or someone else? Can you sue the bar for serving you the booze? Now, this one is in the news right now. The case of the Vancouver bartender who drank 25 drinks at a series of vancouver bars and nightclubs and then fell down and suffered a head injury now this all started when the bartender finished his shift at work and he decided to have a couple of drinks after work He had a cup, uh, two double vodka and sodas he then went to the studio lounge and nightclub where he drank two strong ciders and two shots of whiskey Next stop, Relish the Pub. Four 12-ounce Lone Tree ciders, double vodka and soda, and a shot of whiskey. Last stop of the night, the Roxy. Went to the Roxy in Vancouver. Three double vodka and sodas, three shots of whiskey, and one more unidentified shot, according to court documents. Then he fell down, not surprised, and injured himself, got a head injury when he fell down. Suing some of the bars and companies that own the bars here for over-serving him. Okay, let's discuss this now with my guest, Mike Murphy. Mike is a personal injury lawyer. Murphy Batista, LLP. Hey, Mike, thanks for coming on. Hi, thanks for having me on the show you bet Mike thanks for doing this first of all let's talk about the law as it exists right now like it is illegal right like if you go into a bar and you are served liquor to the point where you're you know completely blotto you're totally intoxicated that's illegal under the law right
4: that that's correct Uh, Mike under the liquor control and licensing act uh, section 61 uh, prohibits the um, the the establishment from doing two things one is Uh, serving somebody alcohol to the point of intoxication, Uh, and the other is uh, uh, they're not allowed uh, to to keep somebody that's intoxicated within the service area. Um, So that, because uh, these bars, I believe, are likely uh, liquor primary licenses, uh, the Liquor Control and and Licensing Licensing Act applies And the staff within uh, would be aware of those uh, those requirements under the law because they've they've taken courses uh, that would tell them about it.
0: Yeah, sure. People may be familiar with the Serve It Right course that's required, right, for serving alcohol. And I guess in that course, I guess what people are told to—they're trained on how to recognize signs of, like, if someone's you know signs of intoxication, you should not serve that person anymore. Exactly that. Yeah. 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 Okay. And so you're not allowed to serve someone enough alcohol to the point of this, this intoxication. And also if someone is drunk, you're supposed to what, ask them to leave? Is that the deal?
4: Um, I, I think the, um, it's incumbent on the, the establishment to recognize how intoxicated somebody is. Um, usually there's, uh, some systems in place to ensure uh, they've got a chaperone, somebody who's not intoxicated to help them get home. Even that it can be a dangerous situation, um, but to take at least rudimentary steps to to ensure the well-being of uh, somebody who's grossly intoxicated.
0: Okay, this is going to be an interesting case here as it proceeds in court, and I'm just wondering your thoughts on at least on the surface of it. Like, do you think it'll be key that you know would they have to? with the bartender here who got drunk and unfortunately injured himself would he have to prove that what the bart these bars knew that he was that he was intoxicated and they shouldn't have served him anymore
4: Yeah, uh my my let me just preface my my comments uh for the benefit of your viewers i i i'm not uh acting on this case it's not my yeah. client but i have dealt with cases like this so i can tell you generally yeah speaking generally it, speaking yeah, generally yeah yep yeah, uh, usually, uh, what we do is we we start at the end of the night uh, with the injury, and, and this fellow I, I gather through uh, the online sources he 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 leaves the rocks, he falls, and he he hits his head on the sidewalk. And yeah. I dealt with enough cases like that uh, to know that you don't need to fall from a, a second or third story window uh, to to sustain a very serious head injury. If you fall. Uh, in a fairly uncoordinated, uncoordinated fashion and, and strike your head on the sidewalk, uh, you can easily fracture your skull and, and be left with a fairly severe traumatic brain injury. Um, so that's usually where we, we start uh, in analyzing these claims, and then we work uh, backwards uh, through the night, not forwards. Uh, we then try to establish uh, why it is uh, the person's injured. So I, I gather that this person falls over. The question is who saw him fall over? Where did he fall over? Was was he assaulted or was he bumped into somebody? Uh, and if so, uh, the question is 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 did the overservice did the intoxication cause or contribute to to him falling? Uh, yeah. So you really need to to sort of forensically anal- uh, analyze this thing, starting from from the back um, all the way forward. So we we know there's probably a serious brain injury. I suspect he, he fell. I'm just assuming that. I suspect he just fell. Uh, because he was so drunk. Uh, And then from that, um, where the analysis goes is analyzing uh, what transpired that evening. And these cases can be difficult because uh, it's sometimes difficult to piece together exactly what happened in the evening. Uh, These injuries, uh, serious brain injury, it's not uncommon for uh, the victim to, to have what's called retrograde amnesia where uh, a portion a portion or most of the evening they, they simply have no memory of it it's oftentimes they're getting ready to go out it might be 6 p.m and that might be their last memory um, before waking up in in hospital so uh, trying to piece together where they went what they consumed when they consumed it um, can be difficult um, uh-huh. if there's friends who are with them if there's receipts if there's credit cards if there's photos uh GPS, those sorts of things really help. Uh um, yeah, it'll be a it'll really... be
0: a complex case. Complex case for sure. Let me let me ask you this. Like speaking generally, under the system of laws that we have in our province right now, like I think most people can understand that it, it's reasonable that, you know, any sort of liquor liquor serving establishment, it should be illegal to serve someone until they're absolutely blind drunk and then they're a danger to themselves or somebody else. I mean I, I think people can understand that as reasonable but what if somebody can just hold their booze really well? Like, what if they don't appear to be intoxicated? Maybe they are, but that would not be obvious to the server. Would there still be liability there? Like, if it doesn't, the person can hold their booze well. Doesn't they don't seem to be drunk? Yeah. I mean, is that a yeah. defense?
4: Yeah, uh, Mike, Mike, it's a very good question. Um, what's interesting about these cases? Is these cases never arise from marginal uh, cases where they're overserved a little bit, and, and we're you know we're kind of unsure about what symptoms they would have been in- exhibiting? It's, it's usually uh, cases where there's uh, gross overservice re- resulting in severe intoxication. Um, so it's a good question in terms of where do you draw that line? If you're not quite sure, maybe the person tolerates their alcohol well. Maybe they're they're fairly well put together, but they've they've consumed a lot. Um, those cases. I've never had to deal with uh, uh, simply because they usually don't arise. It's usually a case where somebody's uh, been overserved quite a bit. And and regardless of how well you hold your alcohol, if you've got 25 drinks under your belt over a fairly short period of time, uh, then you're going to be in a lot of trouble regardless of what your tolerance is.
0: Okay. We're going to follow this one closely. Mike, thanks for coming on with your analysis on it today. Thanks very much, Mike. For most of us, crime
1: is something we see on the news.